Thank you, guys. Um, yeah, thank you, Dan and Mike. Can we just go for one more time? Uh, and for all of our elder team that have shared over these past three weeks of, of, of what's going to be happening. And, uh, and things are moving. Um, a couple things on that. Uh, first of all, is that the, I've gotten questions past two weeks on how to give towards this. Uh, you can give towards this project on the normal giving page, whether that be on the, the app or the website uh, or an envelope. Uh, but on the app or the website, you can choose the funds and you'll see the building campaign fund right there. And on the, the, the envelopes in the back, you can just write building campaign, building, bathrooms, anything like that. And that, that'll, that'll cue us where it's going. Uh, but second of all is you can also partner in this uh, with your hands and with your feet. Uh, we are going to be stretching our dollars by using the people in our church to help do this together. Uh, the electrical has already begun. We had Cameron out there fill, backfilling in trenches this past week. And uh, yeah, putting all the guys to shame. We had, we had Cameron out there, y'all, doing it by herself, yeah. Um, and then also we are actually going to begin demoing the bathrooms tomorrow, 4 to 9 p.m. So if anyone says, I want to help, and uh, you know, demo is one of those great things that you don't have to be skilled. You can pick up a piece of drywall and put it in the back of a truck. Uh, but uh, if you'd like to join us for that, that'll be tomorrow night starting 4 to 9 p.m. The bathrooms will start getting demoed. Obviously that means that we will be short some bathrooms for a couple weeks. So plan accordingly, either before you leave your home or how much coffee you drink when you get here, just plan accordingly. And the, uh, the bathrooms in the basement, there's, there's two stall bathrooms for men's and women's in the basement. Those will, will maintain available um, and you can go down the stairs to use those or use the, the lift in the back closet. We can help you out with that if you need to. Uh, but just be mindful of that over the next couple of weeks. And uh, wow, how many times though do you hear that from a contractor? Yeah, three to four weeks. And okay, here we go, months later, you know. But uh, we'll, we'll just uh, leave that at that. Let me pray. And then we're going to jump into our series, our new three-week series that starts today. Dear Heavenly Father, as we, your body, gather today to open up Scripture, I pray that you illuminate our minds and open our hearts to hear the message of your Spirit. Father, we will be looking at three difficult pieces these next three weeks. And I pray that you give us the understanding to see them in their own context as well in ours. Be with us in Jesus' name. Amen. So the series that we're starting today is called Unresolved. And what it really comes from is looking at a couple examples of contextual issues. A couple examples of issues that the early church, the New Testament church, faced. Dire, dire issues that they faced and yet are not resolved. Issues that they faced and that when we learn about will help us to interpret these New Testament letters. The more we understand these issues, the more we'll be able to understand when we open up our Bible to the New Testament letters, we'll be able to understand these issues going on, but also acknowledging that these issues haven't gone away. And so our framework of understanding or our framework of ministering that's happening through these letters is still applicable for us today. The first one of these unresolved issues that we're going to be talking about is persecution. That's what we're talking about today, is unresolved persecution. And a persecution versus oppression, we should real quick make sure we're understanding what we're talking about. Uh, persecution is not simply hardship. It is hardship, criticism, or judgment because of one's faith. It is not simply a hardship that you are going through. It is a hardship you're going through because of your faith. 
Now, we might look or have heard details of, of the extreme natures of the early church's persecution that it faced for about the first 250 years by the Roman Empire. And I'm sure you've heard very graphic details before, whether that be in sermons or in books, of, of some emperors like Nero and, and some of the extreme and, and grotesque things that they did. Uh, I'm going to avoid those for today because I don't really uh, know how much it's important that we, that we know all these facts of how bad it got. What I want to do today is allow you to feel a little bit of what it maybe felt like back then. Now, persecution in the early church was, was fluctuating at all times. There were times of indifference. For most of, of, of its early church history until about 306, it was illegal, technically, in the Roman law. It was illegal. However, it wasn't always prosecuted. It wasn't always enforced. And persecution, physical persecution that we think of, for the most part was handled locally and infrequently. It might be a certain town, a certain governor, a certain city that chose to take a strong stance on it for a few years. It wasn't widespread throughout the entire Roman Empire for 250 years. It was infrequent and it was usually local. And eventually those laws were revoked in 306 and eventually in 323, Christianity becomes the, the empire's religion, official religion. But until then, it goes through these seasons. Some seasons where it was very physical, where it was what you might call Christian genocide locally of this, this pursuit, this hunting. And other times it would be more social. I want to give a, a quick example uh, of, of when this was a, a more physical uh, hunting of Christians in a certain region by reading a very interesting letter. There is a man named Pliny the Younger and uh, some beer connoisseurs may have heard that, of that, that very famous beer, but that's not what we're talking about. That's where it's named after, though. Pliny the Younger was actually a governor in Asia Minor. He was a governor in Asia Minor, and he writes this letter to the emperor at the time, Emperor Trajan. Now, this letter is not so much graphic as it is cold and calculated. And to me, that just was, it, it felt so much more real. It'd be like hearing our Congress openly discuss how should we uh, uh, cut out Christianity. It's a very upfront, clear, cold, calculated letter. I'm going to read a couple excerpts from that. However, if later or on your own you're interested, on the Soundhouse app, when you open it and if you refresh it, you'll see uh, each week, you'll see a, a, a little icon there, a thumbnail that says uh, sermon resources or sermon notes. And if you click on that, uh, there's actually a link to this letter in its entirety, as well as the response from Emperor Trajan. So if you're interested, you can follow up on this later. If you're not, this will be enough for you. And it's not going to be on the screen. I didn't want you to read it. I just want you to hear it. I want you to listen to it. I want you to feel this, understanding that this is part of your heritage as Christians. Here is Pliny the Younger writing to Emperor Trajan. It is my practice, my lord, to refer to you in all manners concerning which I am in doubt. For who can better give guidance to my hesitation or inform my ignorance? I have never participated in trials of Christians. I therefore do not know what offenses it is the practice to punish or investigate and to what extent. In the case of those who were denounced to me as Christians, I have observed the following procedure. I interrogated them as to whether they were Christians, whether, uh, whether they are Christians. Those who confessed, I interrogated a second and a third time, threatening them with punishment. Those who persisted, I ordered executed. For I had no doubt that whatever the nature of their creed, stubbornness and inflexible obstinacy surely deserves to be punished. 
Soon, accusations spread, as usually happens because of the proceedings going on, and several incidents occurred. An anonymous document was published containing the names of many persons. Those who denied that they were or had been Christians, uh, when they invoked the gods in words dictated by me, offered prayer and incense and wine to your image, Emperor Trajan, which I had ordered be brought for this purpose together with the statues of the gods. And moreover, when they cursed Christ, none of which they are, those who are really Christians, it is said, can be forced to do, these I sought to be discharged. They asserted, however, that the sum of their substance, of their fault or error, had been that they were accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn and sing responsively a hymn to Christ as to God, and to bind themselves by oath not to some crime, but to commit no crime of fraud, theft, or adultery, uh, not to falsify their trust or to refuse to return the trust of one who called upon theirs. When this was over, it was their custom to depart and assemble again to partake of food. Probably not donuts, but maybe. I judged it all the more necessary to find out what the truth was by torturing two female slaves who were called deacons. But I discovered nothing but depraved, excessive superstition. I therefore postponed the investigation and hastened to consult you, for the matter seemed to me warrant, uh, seemed to me to warrant consulting you, especially because of the number involved. For many persons of every age, every rank, and also both sexes are and will be endangered. For the contagion of this superstition has spread not only to the cities but also to the villages and farms. But it seems possible to check and cure it. Do you see anything about how cold and calculated a governor writing to the emperor saying, how do, we, how do we stamp out this contagion? How do we cure it? Now, for uh, most of us, this is nothing we'll ever know. And we know that. And I'm sure the second I said the word persecution, there was a, a mental eye roll of like, come on, like, what, what, what persecution am I facing? But two things to be said on that. The first is that this kind of persecution does still happen. It does still happen in, in our world. There is an organization that you can check out later. It is actually another link on that sermon notes. Uh, it's called Open Doors USA, opendoorsusa.org. Uh, and they're actually based uh, in SoCal, I think in Irvine. And their whole purpose is to illuminate places around the world where there is uh, a physical persecution uh, being taken against Christians. And they list the top 50 uh, countries in, in rank uh, of where it is most dangerous to be a Christian, and they track news stories, and they find ways to connect churches there with churches here. It's very interesting. If you're, if you're interested in that, check that out, opendoorsusa.org, uh, and you can track that, as we'll get to in a little bit later. That is one of our missions as the church. That is one of our purposes that we never let them feel abandoned or alone. But for most of us, what we would face would be more considered to be social persecution, and that might sound weak. After what we just read, after you hear these graphic details, you, you might say social persecution. Like, come on, your feelings are, 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 are hurt or whatever. Like, your, your feelings are hurt. Like, is that that big of a deal? Uh, but the reality is we are all social beings. And we seek the acceptance and respect of others. And when we are denied that, when we are criticized, judged, or ostracized because of our faith, we are experiencing social persecution. And it's not fun. To help highlight this, to understand the hurt that can be 
felt through social persecution. And to understand that this is not just a, a new thing that we deal with. As we said, persecution in the early church fluctuated. At times it was physical. At times it was social. I want to show you this, um, this, this piece of, of, I guess you'd call it art. It's, it's, called, um, it's a piece of Roman graffiti called the Alexamenos Graffito. Now you didn't know it was fluent in Italian, but graffito does mean graffiti. I was able to work that one out. But this is uh, dating from about 200 uh, uh, A.D. This is a piece of graffiti that was carved into, into someone, the side of someone's house. There's a, a biblical scholar who was reflecting on this and wrote a little, a little blurb that I thought was, was powerful, was interesting. Um, by the way, the inscription underneath reads, Alexamenos worships his God. Alexamenos worships his God. The graffito reminds us of how Christianity must have appeared to the sophisticated ancient pagan world. A strange minority religion from some backwater of a civilized world. A religion that was centered on a man punished as a criminal with the most humiliating form of execution and a faith practiced mostly by slaves and people of the lower classes. It reflects the Roman belief that Jews worshipped a god with the head of an ass, a notion that apparently was also carried over to Christians. It also shows graphically the scandal of the cross to which St. Paul refers for sophisticated Hellenistic society, for sophisticated Greek society. The notion of a suffering God was ridiculous. An obviously mythological conception. And for the adherents of a popular religion, it was also viewed as absurd. Which, by the way, Ryan's been gone two weeks. I'm already cussing in the church. I mean, whew. You know, uh, when I first saw this, I, I was brought back to my youth ministry days. Um, because if anyone's ever worked with teens, whether, you know, teachers in the room, right? Um, you are used to seeing uh, just dumb things being written down and kind of used to just, just whatever and tossing them aside. And that's kind of how I first interpreted this. I first saw this and I thought, well, this is just, just some dumb and offensive thing that, that some kid probably carved into a wall, not really thinking about what they were doing. And I started to view it as just kind of impersonal. But, but then it hit me, the more I reflected on this, that Alexamenos was a real person, living in a real community, being, walk, being mocked as he worships Jesus being depicted in such a way. I started thinking about what if this was carved into the side of my house by my neighbor and the police did nothing about it? What if this was carved above your desk at work and your boss agreed with it? This is social persecution in a very graphic form, but this is social persecution and it does hurt. You know, I, I uh, experienced, uh, uh, I was trying to think all week, what is my example of social persecution that I could think of the most? And, and what I could really think of is when I first met uh, Sarah's extended family, my wife's extended family. And if you remember, meeting in-laws for the first time is, is not fun. It's scary. You want to be accepted by them. We weren't even married yet. We'd been dating like a year, and I was meeting all of them. Her dad is one of eight, so you can imagine how many people are there at once, and you're trying to be accepted, and, and I think respected is a piece of that by all of them. And, and uh, I, you know, they knew that I worked uh, for a church and youth ministry at the time, and and it became very clear that, that, one, of, that, that one couple of, of the whole extended family were very outspoken atheists. 
And uh, I, I, just, <laughs> I just instantly felt myself uh, retract. I felt myself you know, not being accepted and respected in that way. And it's funny, for the first year or two, whenever we were talking to them, I'd be trying to explain to them all the good philanthropic stuff the church does, you know? I was in youth ministry and talked about, oh, it's so, so good, the, 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 the community and the stability that it offers for, for youth, which is true. But I was, I was embarrassed. I was embarrassed to profess the, the faith that I have in Christ before them because I knew they didn't accept it. I knew they didn't respect it. It can be difficult when you are living in a bit of that, that tension. Now, like I said, I believe what we face most of all in our context and each of your contexts would be this social persecution. And when we talk about social persecution, 1 Peter becomes the area of emphasis. If you have your Bibles, open up to 1 Peter. We're going to spend the rest of today in 1 Peter. Bounce around a couple texts. Uh, and, and it is interesting. It's powerful. There is no book in the Bible, I would argue, that has been more misused than the book of 1 Peter. I don't know if you know this, but in colonial America, uh, when the country was divided over the view of slavery, 1 Peter was the number one text that was being used by, by proponents of slavery for its justification. 1 Peter is the number one text that was used by the Nazi party to encourage submission to the Nazi party. It is the most misread and misunderstood book of, of the Bible, I would argue, at least of the epistles of the letters in the New Testament that we find. And that's why context becomes everything when we're looking to understand this book. I think I've shared this before, but my favorite example of context is when uh, my family and I, uh, we were in, in Florence, Italy on a family vacation. And if you've ever been to parts of Europe, there's drinking fountains that just run 24-7, right? You just walk through the city, they just, they just run. And I was feeling anxiety because every time I, me, a boy from, from Southern California walked by, I was trying, to, someone left this on, I was trying to find out how do I turn it off because there's water just, just running and just, and just dumping. This is gold to us, right? And, and oh gosh, I was, I was getting anxious every time I, every time I walked by one. And I, I commented it halfway through the trip and my dad was saying, yeah, hit same thing. He's looking, to, where's the shut off, you know? The plumber and him's grabbing tools. We're going to get this fixed right up. And... Uh, that, that is context, as you put us in a different context, and we think the way Southern Californians do, no one from Florence was worried about it. No one from Florence was trying to turn it off, right? There are different concerns, different anxieties, because we're coming from different places. Context is important. And so as we look at 1 Peter, we have to understand a little piece of context. And that is that Peter is writing to a scattering of believers in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. Now, of these believers... It is almost predominantly made up of servants, indentured servants and slaves, uh, and then some lesser people in the household by their standards. Some wives, some, some children of the household. Now the Greek household was different. It wasn't like ours where it was your, your private place. A Greek household, think once again more like a southern plantation. There might be 60 to 100 people living there. The master and his family, his kids and, and their families, Many hired servants, many slaves, and their families, all, all in this one large compound. It was an open place of business. It was its own little economy. Now, this is important when we remember this. Because imagine if for five minutes you were transported to a plantation in colonial America to speak to five slaves for five minutes. What would you tell them? Would you tell them to run? Would you tell them that slavery is wrong, that they should fight it? 
or would doing so get them killed? See, Peter is writing to a very minority of people who are oppressed, who have no authority over their life, and who are voiceless in their community. That's who he's writing to. That is not us in our community. I'm speaking openly from stage. You have the ability to speak openly from stage. And so when we read this text, we have to remember who he's writing to when he tells them certain things. And that's why this book has been misused in so many times. So let's jump into it. In 1 Peter, Peter ministers to these persecuted individuals. Once again, socially persecuted individuals. These people were not being killed at the time. They were being ostracized. They were being given the worst jobs. They were being alienated. They were being shamed and they were being mocked because of their faith. And that is closer to what what we might experience in our lifetime. So Peter ministers in three specific ways. If you have your Bibles, open to 1 Peter. We're going to jump around a little bit in there, but it's interesting. The first thing Peter does is he renames them, gives them a new identity, changing the way they see themselves and their present persecution. Let's read 1 Peter 1, 1 through 2. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the exiles of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen and destined by God the Father and sanctified by the Spirit to, the, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and to be sprinkled with His blood. May grace and peace be yours in abundance. Now this is interesting. That word dispersion, originally it's, 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 um, it's diaspora. And I don't know if you've ever heard that word. It's becoming more of a secular word. Can you raise your hand if you've heard that word diaspora? I hadn't heard of it before studying First Peter, but I literally heard it on the radio two weeks ago as they were referring to the people moving up from South America towards the border in Mexico. That they were people of the diaspora. They were displaced people. They were dispersed people. And in Jewish context, this was used a lot. Because if you remember the the 12 tribes of Israel, by Jesus' time, there's only two, two and a half. The rest of the tribes are gone. They were defeated by by Assyria at the time, and they were scattered all over the known world and lost. And a huge piece of Jewish hope that continues is that God will once again, and we see this in the book of Revelation, that God will once again return the people, that he will sift them out and find them and return the people of God. Now, it's interesting, though, because Peter is giving this title, this title that is, that is the hope for all Judaism that they look towards, and he's saying, you, these Greek, Gentile slaves and servants in these households, he says, you are now the dispersed. You are the exiles, like the Israelites who were exiled to Babylon. He says, you are these exiles. You are the dispersed now. He continues on. Uh, let's read in 1 Peter 2, 9-11. through 11. Listen to these titles that he gives these people who are not Jewish, but he gives them these titles. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people. If you know anything about Hebrew culture, these are titles that were most dear to them. Their most precious possession was the fact that they were the people of God. That they were the one nation that God chose to be representative to the rest of the nation. A priestly nation. And and he's writing to these, these servants and slaves in these households who he's never met. And he says, guess what? You too are a part of this chosen race. 
You too are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people. In order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and exiles to abstain from the desires of the flesh that wage war against your soul. Aliens and exiles. He's writing to these people in Asia Minor who guess where they're from? Asia Minor. He's writing to people in the homes that they were most likely born in and he calls them aliens, resident aliens. He calls them foreigners in their own home. Because even though they are from that town, even though they are from that culture, he's saying, you now have a new identity. You now have a new heritage. Uh, You are a part of this people that is now scattered. View yourselves now as exiles living in a land that is not your own. Um, You know, one of the, the nicest couples in our church, if you have not met them yet, is Victor and Martha, sitting right over there. I asked for permission before pointing them out today. But uh, I remember one of the times uh, they were newer to the church and they mentioned that they went to a, a, a soccer game, football game, sorry, excuse me, right? All right, okay. Football game uh, that, that took place in the Coliseum and it was, it was Nigeria versus Mexico and Martha and Victor are from Nigeria. And they talked about what it was like to, I won't talk about the outcome, that's not important. Not important at that time. But if you can imagine... A, 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 the Mexican national team playing in L.A. is practically a home team. And so you can imagine this. But they're talking about the experience of, of them, themselves being foreigners, being immigrants, being exiles from the culture they were raised in, and yet going to a place where all of a sudden you start seeing, seeing Nigerian jerseys. And, you, and I'm sure you start hearing accents that remind you uh, of home and make you feel uh, a part of that again. That is the experience that Peter is trying to give to these scattered, socially persecuted believers. He says, you are actually a part of a people. And that home that you've been raised in, that you are being persecuted by, that's not your home. That's where you're currently residing as an exile, as an alien. The first thing that Peter really tells them is that you are not alone in your suffering. It's the first takeaway we have there. You are not alone in your suffering. And this is a takeaway that we can hold or we can hold for someone else. This whole message, I feel like, is is a a tool belt for how to view persecution. And if you feel like you or someone you know is facing or has faced some form of social persecution, ostracization from their their work or or maybe their extended family or something, uh, then this is a tool belt for you to use of how to understand and frame persecution. If you feel like that is not you, As I said, it is still a major issue around the world, and this is a framework for understanding the persecution that happens around the world. In Haiti, two weeks ago, missionaries were were kidnapped. Right? It happens. It happens. And so if nothing else is a framework for you to understand that. And the first message Peter tells them is you are not alone. The second is he challenges them to see their suffering as an opportunity, as a witness uh, to Christ. Now, this is where we're going to get into all the... Oh, it's already up there. Okay. This is where we're going to get into the, all the, the conflict texts. All the texts that have been pulled out of context and used prescriptively uh, for personal gain, and they should not be. So remember, Peter is writing to persecuted, socially persecuted people in a household that they do not have any authority in. They do not have any voice in. And this is what it sounds like. 
Wives, in the same way, accept the authority of your husbands, so that even if some of them do not obey the word, they may be won over without a word by their wives. Conduct. When they see the purity and reverence of your lives, do not adorn yourselves outwardly by braiding your hair and by wearing gold ornaments or fine clothing. Rather, let your uh, adornment be the inner self with the lasting beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in God's sight. Now, I, I think, yeah, I bolded that one part. No, I bolded it in mine. That they may be won over without a word. Be won over, meaning that they are not currently believers. He is writing to wives of unbelieving husbands in these large households where in that time they did not have a voice. They did not have an authority. They are subject to their husband in that situation. And so he's writing to them trying to, to talk about how we can navigate that. Now if he was writing to every wife in the entire city, he could exact some change, enact some change. But if he's writing to a scattered five, six, he's going to tell them how to survive. But more than survive, he's giving them purpose, right? That they may be won over by the, uh, they may be won over without a word of their wives. Like when St. Francis of Assisi says, preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words. Let your life be a constant revealing of the gospel. And so he says, you know what? Um, focus your time and attention on adorning your character, your heart, your soul. That they may look at you and say there is something different about you and be drawn to Christ. Okay. Do we feel like we stomached that piece? Because it gets a lot worse. Yeah? Okay. And once again, we have to keep that context in mind or else this text is once again misused. Okay, let's jump into this one. 1 Peter 2, verse 12. 1 Peter 2, verse 12. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles, so that though they may malign you as evildoers, they may see your honorable deeds and glorify God when He comes to judge. For the Lord's sake, accept the authority of every human institution. This was the start of where the Nazis picked up on. Whether of the emperor as supreme or of governors such as Pliny or as uh, by him to punish those who do... Sorry, sorry, sorry. As sent by him uh, who punish those who do wrong and to praise those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing right you should silence the ignorance of the foolish. As servants of God live as free people, yet do not use your freedom as pretext for evil. Honor everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Now to our American ideologies, that's hard to stomach, isn't it? And we just read what kind of emperor... Uh, what kind of government is around in that letter from Pliny to, to Trajan? And some of, of Trajan's response is, good work, you're doing the right stuff. Honor the emperor. That is difficult for us to understand, but once again, he's writing to a very, very minority of voiceless people who have no ability to bring about change in their lives. Now, that's an interesting distinction to make. Because there might be circumstances in your life where you face social persecution, but with a peer. And you have the ability to say, hey, do me a favor, don't make comments like that. You have some social circles where you're able to do that. You might, however, have some social circles where you are not. Um, when I, you know, as, as I said, when I was meeting Sarah's in-laws, I was the new guy walking in. That was not a time for me to put my foot down. If you have an unbelieving
facing their faith understand that more than us. And it's hard to say it, but he's saying it's actually a bit of a gift. That in your suffering, you are closer to the heart of Christ than you will ever be. So Peter's second thing of encouragement to them, second piece of encouragement, he says, you have purpose in your suffering. You have purpose in your suffering. You are not alone in your suffering, and you have purpose in your suffering. This last one I'm going to do uh, briefly. is he reminds them to hope in the return of Christ. 1 Peter 1, verse 13 says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Discipline yourselves. Set all your hope on the grace that Jesus Christ will bring you when He is revealed. And at the end of the book, 1 Peter 5, 8-11, he says, Discipline yourselves. Keep alert. Like a roaring lion, your adversary, the devil, prowls around looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Steadfast in your faith, for you know that your brothers and sisters in all the world are undergoing the same kinds of suffering. And after all have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, support, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Your suffering will end. God's justice is coming is the closing argument that Peter makes. You are not alone in your suffering. There is purpose in your suffering, and your suffering will end. God's justice is coming. coming. In other words, hope. In other words, at the end of the day, Whenever we face persecution, might that be social persecution in your life? Might that be physical persecution around the world that we are trying to comprehend and understand? At the end of it all, it ends with hope. That we place our hope in Christ. Today is Communion Sunday, which uh, we're bringing back down here um, after enough complaints over the Kool-Aid and Styrofoam that we have been eating. Um, and there actually is still that option in the middle, um, but yes, yeah, so there's the traditional communion on the sides, and in the middle there are the prepackaged ones if you prefer that. But communion is probably the greatest statement of hope that we have, right? And communion is our participation in Christ, acknowledging that our lot is tied to His. I would encourage, if you want, to continue to read the book of 1 Peter uh, at home, but it talks about that. It talks about that, our, that Christ, through his suffering, was then glorified, and that through baptism, we share in the same thing. And through communion, we celebrate this, that we participate in his body, in his life, in his death, and his resurrection. That in communion, we are announcing to ourselves and declaring that our hope is in Christ. So no matter where you see yourself or the world around you, let this be a moment to be a statement that no matter how bleak the world may look at times, you put your hope in Christ. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Sundays like today are difficult as we acknowledge some difficult realities of our world. Like the reality that we will face persecution, maybe social in our context, maybe physical or fatal in others. But Father, As Peter ministers to these people, so let it be a minister to us that we are not alone in our suffering, that we can find purpose in our suffering to minister to others and to know you more fully. And lastly, that we are to put our hope in you, the only real answer to persecution that we find in the world. Lord, we lean on you today. In Jesus' name, amen. 
We're going to have one last song of worship. Um, at your ready, feel free to come up and uh, take the communion elements. You can take them back to your seat. And uh, pause for a second when you get back to your seat. Um, let this be, as I said, a statement of your choice to put your hope in Christ. Thanks.